Hello and welcome to the Mystic Cast, where you join me, Jack Stafford, a student of metaphysics, as I talk to a variety of guests to better understand the teachings given by the Masters through the Aetherius Society, the new cosmic religion for the Aquarian Age, incorporating all yogas, Christian mysticism, theosophy, UFOs, and much, much more. Please note that this is an independent broadcast, not produced or fact-checked by the Aetherius Society. Today, my guest is the author and anthropologist, Wade Davis. Great. Well, this is a real pleasure to speak to you. I'm just the, of all the people I could speak to, you struck you struck me as one of the most interesting. And so I don't have a whole list of questions here. I just want to sure. just chat to you about your life, basically, because you had a wild ride there. I mean, you had a pretty crazy adventure. Yeah. Um, you know, I've always lived by um, the old adage of Jim Whitaker, uh, you know, the first American to summit Everest, who said, if you if you're not living on the edge when you're young, you're taking up too much space. <laughs> and didn't you say like if you're, if you, it's not an adventure if you're not suffering and in discomfort? No, and no, no, you don't. I, I mean, absolutely not. I mean, I I think only you know to to um, to sort of uh, set out to seek discomfort is mm. is, is um, a kind of fool's game. It's like the travel writer who who kind of deliberately bumbles their way into misadventures just mm. so they have fodder for their books. I mean, you know, yeah, you, yeah. you know, my, my great professor, well, Dick Schultes, who was probably the greatest Amazonian explorer, certainly of the 20th century, always said that adventures only happen to those who are unprepared. And so, you know, the adventure is a journey itself and, and the mm. encounters one has with uh, other remarkable people in my case other cultures mm. i noticed when i've been traveling uh, through music and uh, i did a lot of backpacking with the guitar and uh, you know if you just open to an adventure every day is just a story and something happens because when you're moving through when i was i was moving through civilization you've been through areas well you know i mean uncharted. I mean, Jack, that's kind of the purpose of travel i mean you know you you know uh, I, I think that's what distinguishes in a sense, travel from tourism. I mean, the tourism, tourism these uh, days, you know, people can jump off in a day and reach virtually any part of the world, mm -hmm. uh, stay a week and get back in time for their cousin's wedding. Um, <laughs> real travel is when you um, go with no itinerary, no plans, no certainty of return, and, and, and with only the promise that by definition, you'll come back a different person. I mean, that's the nature mm -hmm. of travel. That's a the pilgrimage, you know, the pilgrim, the point of the pilgrimage is not the destination is to achieve a state of mind. And so the, you know, the classic notion of travel, um, and incidentally to this day, uh, virtually the vast percentage of tourism, as we might call it in India is indeed still sacred pilgrimage as people move through landscape. And the idea there is that you're leaving, um, a social space or a, your comfort zone, as we often say, mm -hmm. and you're and you're and you've got a kind of a destination in mind. But what you're really doing is you're moving through liminal space, that sort of place between what you know and what you're going to become. And uh, and in that space, you're alone, and that's when mm -hmm. change can happen, right? And 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 that's what the Irish always talk about: the thin places, the idea that you. You know, you're looking for those points in the landscape that can be literal points or metaphorical points or even spiritual points where heaven and earth come together, uh, if only for an instant, to reveal glimpses of the divine. That's so poetic. I mean, you could tell you're a writer. You just, you just probably don't have to. You probably write one draft now and that's good to go. You just yeah, I don't wax do lyrical. No. I no. don't. I actually <laughs> Because when I listen to back to my podcast, I often say, you know, thinking words like, you know, you know, mm, and but you're so, um, yeah, kudos to that. But uh, you're most famous for, yeah, the Amazon and uh, the, the exploring these these far off places. But you're in BC now, is that right? Well, I'm from British Columbia, you know, and, and this was, um, you know, very much uh, the foundation of of, of who I am and and. Uh, in a way, it's what allowed me to, I think, do what I did in the sense that, mm. uh, you know, you grew up in a in a small uh, family 
modest family in Canada, you know, and you, it's not particularly in the era of 1960s when I was a, a you know, a youth, um, it's not hard to kind of succumb to Baudelaire's malady, horror of home, you know, and, and you, and you, and you, 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 you face a choice either mm. kind of, um, um, you know, accepting the, 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 the bourgeois um, conventional realm in which you were born, or you have to get out of it. And to get out of it um, often involves jumping off cliffs, you know. And I, at a very early age, um, recognized that I, that I had to get out into the world uh, to become the person who I wanted to be. I didn't know who that person was. And that's a great line from Bob Dylan, you know, Dylan always says you don't go don't go out in the road to find yourself. You go out to the road to create yourself. And Jack, it's funny. I mean, I'm almost seventy, and uh, as you probably know, I do a great deal of public speaking. And sometimes, you know, I, I, particularly if I'm giving a presentation that I've given before in one form or another, I can find myself kind of floating out of my body. And I don't mean this in a in a a, a pretentious sense, um, but literally, sort of you know, just because I'm bored at the podium, uh, kind of floating out of the body <laughs> and watching this person um, give this rap, if you will. And the rap's very elegant and very eloquent. And, um, but I'm looking down at that podium and I'm thinking, you know, how the fuck did that little kid from that little suburb of Montreal grow up to be a man who has these thoughts? And I, I, I say that not in a, in a self-aggrandizing sense, but I mean, I mean, think this is really the wonderful thing about the journey of life is, you know, we, we, we can't, um, we can't control the cards we're given at birth, but between that moment and the moment of death, it's in our hands, right? So how do you deal with that? Um, and often when I'm, you know, asked, you know, people, People look at my life often, and and as we look at any life that we think is, you know, you know, a good one or a realized one or one that has elements that we would like to emulate, just as I did when I was a young boy, looking up at my mentors and heroes and um, and role models, if you will, and and you think, how the heck can I ever become like Gary Snyder or? Uh, Jack Kerouac, if that's your model, it wouldn't be my model. Um, and 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 the answer is, of course, is that we're seventy years old, and and we've had a long time to build these lives, right? And so when I say to young people, I always say, you know, life is, um, you know, it, 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 you have to accept a few tenets that you know, um, despair. Uh, Pessimism is an indulgence, despair, an insult, the imagination, orthodoxy, the enemy of adventure, of invention. You have to do what needs to be done and only then ask whether it was possible or permissible. And, and the work you have is, or your job is just a lens through which the world, uh, uh, through which you see the world and only for a while. And the goal of life is to make your life itself your vocation. Uh, knowing, you know, that, that, uh, it will take time, uh, and, and you have to be an opportunist, you know, and not in terms of being a schemer, but just in terms of putting yourself in the way of opportunities when you're young, so that there's no, in moments where there's just no choice, but success and failure is simply not an option. And then one of the things you discover along the way is that creativity isn't something that other people have and you don't have. Creativity is not the motivation of action. Creativity is a consequence of action. You can't create if you don't do. And the great bourgeois conundrum is the false sense that creativity happens to other people. And for me, it took a long while to, to, to realize that, you know. And... Um, and again, if you had known the circumstances of my upbringing, it would be very difficult to ever imagine that I would be a filmmaker or a photographer or, for that matter, a writer. But all of that said, you know, back to your question about British Columbia, one of the great things about growing up here 
uh, particularly in that in that in that generation, was that we all, uh, you know, we all encountered the bush. You know, it sounds mm -hmm. funny. It's a little bit like in Australia. You know, do, do you do you live your life out in the in the suburbs of Sydney or, or Melbourne? You know, or, or or even Darwin or Perth. Or do you actually get back, you know, in Arnhem, Arnhem Land, you know, and find out yeah, what it means yeah. Australian? And in Canada, we had the opportunity to do that. So without really having to work at it, I found myself fighting forest fires at 15 and, you know, cutting trail, working in logging camps. And in retrospect, that was as much and as useful an initiation as the years I spent at Harvard. You know, and again, this gets back to an important theme, for, I think, for young people. Nothing is a waste of time unless you make it so. No task or job or is beneath you unless you think of it that way. You know, and, and, and the most humble taxi cab driver can have as much to teach you as a, as a university professor. I remember, Jack, I was once in a cab in, in Washington, D.C., and there was this African-American driver who looked a little bit old, you know, and I, I was very polite. And I said, you know, sir, I don't mean to be rude, but you look a little old for this job. It's a tough city. And he said, son, how old do you think I am? And I said, sir, well, you know, I don't want to be, you know, rude here, but, you know, you look like late 70s, early 80s. I mean, man, this is a tough town. And he leaned back to me and he said, son, I'm 97 years old. And oh said, my God. <laughs> and I said, 97 years old, driving cab in Washington, D.C. You look so great. You look so young. What, what's the secret to your longevity and good health? And he leaned back to me, Jack, and he said, Son, I don't worry about a fucking thing. And to me, that was <laughs> wisdom, right? You know, I mean, mm -hmm. probably in his circumstances, that gentleman had never had much education, but that didn't mean he wasn't wise. And so that's that's something that's very much been a kind of a, um, a almost a lodestone or a compass of my life is, is to always uh, recognize that everybody has something to teach me. Wow, I guess it's that that uh, curiosity that drives you because yeah, I've driven across Canada and it's all you're all close to the border now. It's all just this one long thin line of ah, that it. for some Canadians, for some Canadians. But you see, it's what above that line, Jack, is what makes Canada. Because you see, you know, Americans look west for heroes. Canadians look north. And the way, oh, to, the north, yeah. the way to the north hovers in the Canadian imagination and creates the essence of the national soul. It's a weight of the winter. That's why the most perfect expression of Canadian patriotism is a line of Francophone verse from Gilles Vigneault, who said, my country is not a country, it's the winter. You know, and and so uh, it is astonishing, but it's like in Australia. I mean, how many people never leave, um, you know, oh. Sydney or whatever, you know? It is true that most Canadians like the idea of the North, but they never go there. But I do go there, and um, it's an extraordinary, immense landscape. You could take, remember, the lower 48 of the United States, continental United States, turn on its side and still have 1,500 kilometers of Canada running away to the North Pole. I mean, the Canadian North is the kind of place we could throw England and the English would never find it. <laughs> if in one little lake. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for most so that, of our history, we had more lakes than people. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I own a fishing lodge, uh, a fancy term for kind of a funky fish camp uh, up north on a lake, uh, only place on a seven-kilometer lake. And... Uh, nearest town's a seven-hour drive. I mean, the only other people that I know that can kind of grok that are the Aussies. It's like when you're in Melbourne, you know, and you say, go out to Perth for the next day, you know, and then you get on a plane and seven hours later, you're still in the air, you know? I mean, it's like that scale of landscape. And I think, I think it's interesting. I mean, you know, you know, landscape determines character, you know, um, culture springs from a spirit of, of place. You know, we are a, a reflection of our, of our land. I mean, um, you know, Margaret Atwood said it in terms of Canada, if you wanted to understand the essence of Canada, the United States and England, you just needed to know three words and that, uh, you know, for, for America frontier and for England Island and for Canada survival, because it is the weight of the North. I mean, 
Just think about this. Have you ever thought about, Jack, the life of the Inuit? I've spent a lot of time in the Arctic with the Inuit. Imagine being in a place, well, you can actually in Australia almost, uh, with no wood, right? Um, yeah. You know, Inuit didn't fear the cold. They took advantage of it. The, the runners of their sleds were made of fish. Um, the, you know, the supports for their sleds were made of frozen walrus meat. Peter Freuken, the great explorer, the Danish explorer, said the great thing about a Inukamatik uh, is that if you ran out of food, you could eat your sled. <laughs> you know? Wow. Gosh, all these experiences, but going back to what you said about the journey within, and uh, because this is, a, this is a mystical podcast, I'm trying to understand um, you know, consciousness and the survival of consciousness. And so on all your journeys and all your writings, you've, in, you've encountered a lot of a lot of strange experiences and you talk about yeah, floating out of your body there and having a having an experience like that. But um yeah, so I'm trying to understand that that a continuation of consciousness and I've I'm a member of the Aetherius Society, which is a it's a, a new mystic uh, religion for the uh, for the Aquarian age. And one of the quotes from the masters is that uh, imagination is is man's only creative faculty. And that what you said there reminded me of that in that is that, you know, it, when you're obviously not when you're in the outback there or in the uh with the inuit we're looking at the natural landscape everything we see is is from man's creativity you know i'm talking to you through another man's another man imagine this microphone another man imagine zoom right. um we drive down the roads we drive down people's old imagination and and so that just inspired me to say to tell you that quote when well, i when i heard that yeah i mean i mean that's sort of you know back to what i've i've um <clears throat> tried to focus on and, and what drew me to anthropology was, um, you, you know, we, we, we had this 19th century notion uh, inspired by Darwin that if species evolved, surely cultures evolved. And we created this kind of model that certainly served the colonial enterprise, um, that somehow we went as a species through a series of stage sets, you know, from the the, the savage to the barbarian, invariably to the mm. civilized of the Strand of London, this sort of notion of evolutionary culture, you know. I mean, the, the word survival of the fittest was coined not by a biologist, but by an anthropologist, Herbert Spencer. And, you know, that, that idea of development in a, in, a, in a century of racism and imperialism was a kind of cold intellectual convenience, which has been utterly exposed by modern activist anthropology um, as an artifact of the 19th century, no more relevant to our lives today than the notion that clergymen had then, that the earth was just 6,000 years old. And yet that idea has persisted. And if the first sort of activist anthropologists were sort of saying, that's ridiculous, every culture is a product of its own history, um, you know, every, every, every culture is just a unique answer to a fundamental question. What does it mean to be human and alive? And, and, and people answer that question in 7,000 different languages of humanity. Uh, and that collectively this becomes a human repertoire and that the very existence of these other ways of thinking uh, put the lie to those of us, say, for example, in our own cultural tradition who suggests that we cannot change when we all know we must change the fundamental way we inhabit the planet. And, uh, you know, this was kind of an idea, a hope, a dream in a way of these uh, anthropologists going back to Franz Boas and Margaret Mead and um, Ruth Benedict, this great cadre that clustered around Boas in New York in the 1920s and 30s. And um, amazingly, genetics has proven it to be true in the sense that we now know that the human genetic endowment by definition is a continuum race biologically is an utter fiction um we're all cut from the same genetic cloth but the and in fact we're all we now know descendants of africa including those of us who walked out of the ancient continent some sixty-five thousand years ago and embarked on this incredible journey that carried the human spirit and imagination to all parts of the world but Here's the important point. Um, if we're cut from the same genetic cloth, by definition, we share the same human genius. And critically, how that genius is expressed 
is simply a matter of choice and cultural orientation. So there is no hierarchy in, uh, of progress in the affairs of humans. You know, I mean, take the Aboriginal people of Australia. It's, it's the ultimate example. Uh, you know, when the British first got there, um, they saw people that looked strange, had a simple material technology. But what really offended the British was that the Aboriginal civilization, all 10,000 clan territories in 670 languages and dialects in the most parsimonious continent on earth, uh, had no interest in improving upon their lot and materially. And since progress, optimism was a very ethos of Europe at that time, uh, notions that of course died in the mud and blood of Flanders in the great war, but very much alive during the settlement of Australia, um, the British, um, you know, concluded in their inimitable way that Aboriginal people weren't human and they began to shoot them. And as recently as 1902, it was debated in parliament in Melbourne as to whether or not Aboriginal people were human or not. You know, as recently as the 1950s in Australia, there are quotas as to how many abos could be shot with impunity who trespassed upon land that had been claimed by um, um, Europeans. Uh, in 1960s, I had an old maid in Alice Springs, an anthropologist who told me when he grew up, uh, there was a book used in the school curriculum of uh, Australia called A Treasury of Fauna of Australia that listed, in, amongst the other forms of wildlife, the Aboriginal people. In other words, and but what was missing in this European encounter was an understanding of a very subtle devotional philosophy, which was the dreaming. And as a great Australian anthropologist, um, um, Stammer wrote, um, he's got a great book called White Man Got No Dreaming, and uh, uh, that the entire ethos in Australia was the antithesis of progress, it was in fact stasis. And the goal of life was not to change the world, but to the contrary, do the ritual gestures along the song line that happened to traverse your clan territory, the ritual gestures deemed to be necessary to keep the world exactly as it had always been. It's almost like as if in European tradition, we had spent all of our energy and intellectual acumen maintaining the Garden of Eden, pruning the shrubs of the Garden of Eden to keep it just as it was at the time of that fateful conversation between Adam and Eve. Now, the interesting thing isn't to say who's right and who's wrong. Had humanity followed that devotional trajectory as, as a whole, yeah, we wouldn't have developed allopathic medicine or put a man on the moon. On the other hand, we wouldn't be talking about climate change and our capacity to transform the life support systems of the planet. So you, you have to ask yourself, at least speculatively, you know, it, in 10,000 years, as we look back, if we're still kicking around, which way of thinking will have proven to be the most adaptive and um, clever? Yeah, that's so interesting because what you're making me think also is that I've just seen this Graham Hancock's uh, Ancient Apocalypse series on Netflix. Have, have you seen that? Are you aware of his work? Yeah, sure. He, he goes and um, I think his basic argument is that there is there is a lot of archaeology uh, um, structures older than six thousand years, and um, even the one you know the, the big ones, um, we needed a developed civilization to make those, and um, it's it's quite rational that you know because hunter gatherers still exist now on the earth, independent to us. You know the people went over to Australia and they found them you know, hundreds of years ago and they civilizations exist in different areas. So it's not irrational to think that there is, I mean, when you were in the Amazon, did you see it in the Aztecs? I mean, must seem mind blowing structures. You must wonder about that 6,000 year old number. Well, 6,000 years old is, is just, is, 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 is it, that's a, that's just a, a kind of calculation from Genesis mm -hmm. that has no historical meaning. It's just a, 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 a a kind of examination and deduction based on biblical text. Mm. I mean, it's no, no grounding in, in actual history and no one actually these days would pretend that it does. Um, but, you know, certainly the, the depth of civilization, I mean, that said, you know, um, uh, 
I've always been um, very careful with with speculation that that seems to lean toward uh, having to invoke fantasy or as if what's out there is not good enough. You know, in other words, it's it's sort of like uh, that old. There was a book that came out, The Secret Life of Plants, that that made great claims about plants responding to Mozart or human touch. And mm -hmm. uh, I had a great friend of mine, a um, great botanist who passed away, uh, who, who was a great poet and a great botanist and also a musician, uh, but he hated that book. And he used to say to wow. me, why would a plant give a shit about Mozart? And even if it did, why should that impress us? They can eat light. Isn't that enough? In other, in other words, the wonder of what we know to exist, even in prehistory, whether it's going back to understanding the roots of the Inca in all the pre-Columbian civilizations that predated the sudden rise um, in the 15th century of the Inca. Um, you know, we know a lot about that. And, and what we know is extraordinary, wondrous. And we certainly don't want, we won't benefit by invoking, you know, or indulging speculation that is just that, that is titillating, but not grounded in, in any evidence. Um, it's a little bit like, you know, when Shirley MacLaine, you know, sort of reported that the stonework of the Inca had to have been the work of Martians or something, you know, like, it, and no, you know, no more fanciful than the, the, the early Spaniard conquistador is saying that it was the work of the devil. I mean, both um, suggestions are both silly, but also demeaning. They deny the Incaic people their greatest engineering achievement, which was in fact carving those stones. So I've always, you know, um, as, as a, and I guess as a, as a scholar or as a writer or whatever, you know, really kept one foot grounded in science um, and uh, and history as we understand it to be. Uh, and then that allows you to take that step into the realm of the imagination and uh, a place that is undeniably uh, rich and fertile and accessed in so many different ways through ordeal uh, through through ceremony uh, through the ingestion of uh, these sacred medicines you know having been in those realms I also give kind of honor those realms and and I'm curious about what those realms imply for all of us in the same sense that I can't help but wonder what came uh, for me before birth um, as I anticipate what may come for me after death you believe in the uh, continuation of consciousness you know, I, I, I think that, um, uh, you know, every, um, you know, every speculation as to what happens to us in the afterlife should come with a caveat. Like every church, my father used to say, should have a billboard outside of it saying important if true. <laughs> that's a good because one. The truth is we, we, we don't know. And I mean, that's a fascinating mm. Thing about religion, I mean, basically every single religion comes down to a single question: What happens to us after we die? In the same way that all of uh, of human intellectual endeavor comes down to two questions: Why and how? And mm. you know, it's why there's no conflict really between religion and science because they ask different questions. You know, science asks the question how, and religion asks the question why, and death is the first teacher by definition it's the edge beyond which life as we know it ends and wonder begins and how any culture deals with that inexorable separation that death implies generally you know plays a major role in determining their mystical worldview whether it's shamanic practices in a small hunting and gathering society or the elaborate construct of the roman catholic church yeah but all these lost civilizations, I mean, how little we know about them, the Aztecs and the, uh, and even the Egyptians were, seemed to be, they didn't even build the pyramids, it seems. They didn't have the tools. They just, 
Well, that's not kind of true. No, that's just not true. We know exactly how the pyramids were built. It's not complicated. We know exactly how the Inca carved their stones. It's not complicated. You well, don't have to. And you know, in the minute you start invoking the metaphysical or the mystical to explain simple engineering achievements, we have to always remember how much that denies the brilliance of those um, engineers. Remember, look, you know, you think of the Incas being an ancient civilization. There yesterday, mm. you know, the Inca, the Inca began in 1438 uh, at, at the battle um, at the head of the uh, Apurimac River. And they took on their enemy, the Chanka. And in this myth, this kind of mythical event, mm -hmm. obviously also a literal battle, they pushed back the Chanka and the Inca fled the field, but his son stood. And they say stones became warriors and they defeated their enemy. But from that moment on, that lad took on the title of Pachacuti, transformer of the world and 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 began the expansion of what had been a small uh, tribal society um, with antecedents in the Cusco region, um, a, a sophisticated society, but one that then became imperial, if you will. And, and the expansion of the Inca uh, was less than 100 years. In that 100 years, they built 14,000 miles of road. They created storehouses. They created wow. They created storehouses where you could, where you could, where you could um, preserve uh, hundreds of thousands of bushels of of uh, freeze dried potatoes and and mm. tuber crops and and other tuber crops. I mean, the, the 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 logistical achievement of the Inca was was extraordinary, and they did it all in less than a hundred years. There only were three Inca rulers that we know from the expansion of the empire, Pachacuti, Topanguyupanqui, and his son, Huanacapac. And then when Huanacapac mm -hmm. died of smallpox before the Spaniards even reached Peru, there was a civil war because the empire had extended all the way from southern Colombia to the Mole River in Chile. And the north was Atahualpa, the south was Huascar, and they were in civil war when the Spaniards arrived. The point is that, you know, we know a lot about uh, how the uh, and the more we know about how the Inca expanded so quickly, the more wondrous it becomes, and the more disrespectful it becomes to invoke fantasy uh, to try to account for their achievements. Just because we can't imagine doing something doesn't mean that other peoples can't do it. That was mm. a big lesson for me. You know, I remember. You know, the question in terms of keeping on the Inca for a second, you know, how did they move those big stones at Saxuiman above the fortress above Cusco? Well, this is why, because because we couldn't imagine doing it ourselves with the tools that they had. That's why you get these um, kind of ridiculous speculations of, uh, of either the phantasmagoric like spacemen did it or whatever, right? But actually... What the real challenge is, is trying to remember what the mindset of the Inca would have been. First of all, for them, stone wasn't cold granite. It was the embodiment of life itself. It, it was, it was, a, it, and, um, and we know, incidentally, that, that using a simple drop technique, you can turn a, a block of andesite into a perfectly symmetrical ashlar not in weeks or months, but in hours and days. And of course, for that work, it was work for the divine, the Inca. And for such a purpose, uh, time had no meaning. So that attitude towards stone, together with the attitude towards work and time, brought together by an empire, the genius of which was logistics, <laughs> um, you know, their ability to march armies of thousands of men across the Atacama Desert, put that all together and it suddenly isn't quite such a surprise that Machu Picchu could be built with a single architectural plan. And again, remember, this is only uh, 500 years ago and, and slightly more. And, and we share the same genius that they had. They shared our genius um, and they are capable of great things. It's not, you know, they, they were for all intents and purposes, you know, um, you know, modern human beings, you know, in mm -hmm. terms of 
in terms of the long scale of our evolutionary <laughs> history. So it shouldn't surprise us, but we don't, you know, again, we don't need to invoke the the fantasy to um, to recognize the brilliance of what was in mm. fact achieved. And and the same thing is kind of true with the Maya, you know, or the or the Aztec. Yes, we don't know everything, but I'm always amazed by how much archaeologists have been able to decipher. I mean, I've been at ancient sites, you know, buried in the forests of Guatemala, like El Mirador, you know, where seven of the eight biggest pyramids in the world are. You know, one pyramid alone, the base of it is larger than the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. These were monumental <laughs> structures, and they were built by people. And that's incredible and kind of wondrous thing. Yeah. Well, I can't argue with you about all these facts and details. I just were, you know, watching those those documentaries, they do kind of make a good case. They 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 do these scat lidar scans, is that right? And they um you know can see there's older pyramids inside there. And oh no, I mean built... part of what you're seeing, no part of what you're seeing is ground testing, which is a whole new, extraordinary um capacity to see through canopy of the forest to the ground cover. Yeah, and that I mean one of the but you know again this is not uh, and and our our sense of understanding is changing all the time. And the classic place would be the Amazon basin. You know, where, where for years, um, anthropologists have sort of, you know, um, even though we, you know, anthropologists have sort of described it as a kind of a, in the words of a famous anthropologist, a counterfeit paradise where human beings sort of have to sort of scramble to survive, you, you know, with slash and burn agriculture. Well, this, this idea came about for a couple of reasons. First of all, it reinforced a a very important environmental agenda by suggesting that these forests were in fact delicate and frail. Uh, and secondly, it, it reflected the fact that but when anthropologists first got into the basin in numbers, they were drawn to the extent societies that were, were living along the margins of the basin, isolated from development by the uh, rivers and cataracts and, and, and distance to the east and the Andean Cordillera to the west, which wasn't penetrated by roads until the 1940s. And so these these small endogenous um, cultures, often in open conflict with their neighbors, uh, marrying amongst themselves, became our model for what human life must have been like in the Amazon. But when you look back to 1541, when Aureliana becomes the first Spaniard with his scribe, Caspar de Cabrivajal, to go down the Amazon. You know, he doesn't go through an empty forest. You know, it's densely... Yeah, I was going to ask you about this. Yeah, we, yeah. And we now know that there were probably 10 million people living in the Amazon basin. And Before he passed through with smallpox and... Uh... Yeah, I mean, you know, don't forget, smallpox didn't... You often hear that smallpox decimated people. Well, that's yeah. not true. Because decimate in Latin means to kill one in 10. In fact, it was nine uh, uh, men that were killed by smallpox. And as I mentioned in the case of Huaynacapac, the, the pestilence often arrived before the Europeans did, you know, following mm -hmm. traditional trade routes. So it was like really a miasma. I mean, here on the coast of British Columbia, you know, very late to European contact. I mean, here in British Columbia, I knew a man I recorded myth from for many, many years. And he was an old chief and elder and very respected hunter, uh, Gitsan by birth, uh, married into the tall, uh, into the second E, but also lived amongst the Taltan. And, um, and Alex was 43 before he had sustained contact with white people. It's hard to imagine, right? But even here, the smallpox swept up the coast in 1862. And even to this day, the First Nations, the Haida, the Nuchamath, Kwakwakwak, and others will remember it as being a cloud of blue haze that came up the coast. Well, we know biologically that smallpox didn't manifest itself as a blue cloud, but that description of it perfectly encapsulates the perception that people had of this invisible pestilence that this swept over their lives. And you know, the thing about smallpox, of course, it had huge uh, uh, levels of mortality, but it, before it killed, it disfigured in the most hideous way. So it's not just that, you know, your son went to bed and didn't get up in the morning. Before your son or daughter 
beloved wife uh, succumbed to the disease, their entire body was disfigured with the most horrific and nauseating pustules of, of, uh, of the pathogen. And so it, it had a psychological impact on the survivors, many of whom lived their lives pockmocked by the disease, as much as it, the death of the people, you know, crushed their, their, their emotions. It must have been just the most hideous of all diseases. Makes COVID look like a piece of cake. It makes COVID look like a piece of cake. That's true. I saw you read it. You wrote an excellent piece in the Rolling Stone about uh, COVID and how it's transforming our society. Well, that was a funny story, uh, Jack, because I, you know, during the height of COVID, and that piece you're referring to was written in uh, late July of night of 2020, and um, I just a lot of people had asked me to write about COVID, and I didn't really feel I had anything new to say. And then one day I was just paddling my kayak around our little island here. And uh, I suddenly had this sort of idea or thought that COVID really wasn't about medicine or public health. It was really a story of culture. And I, I came back and I wrote on spec a kind of essay thinking about that in terms of the kind of looking at the United States, which at that time, if you can recall, was uniquely in trouble with COVID. And it, 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 it was almost like the end of American exceptionalism, as you were, you know. So I wrote this piece and I sent it to my old friend, Jan Wenner, who created Rolling Stone. And Jan liked it and sent it to his son, who now runs the company. And, and Gus uh, got a great editor on it. And we cut it down from maybe 7,000 words to 5,000. <laughs> And uh, we put it up on the website with no expectations. I didn't even ask for a fee. I just did it for, and it just went viral. It had 362 million social media impressions and 5 million people read it on Rolling Stone. It was like their top essay of the year. And it went, it, it just, it, it hit a nerve, you know, yes, um, you know, and I think what made it, what made it a interest or, and, and not a lot of it doesn't, you know, like all these pieces written in the heat of the moment, they don't always hold up and their elements in that essay that, that, um, that, have, where I was quite wrong, you know, yeah, well, hindsight, you know, but, but, um, in the moment it hit a nerve because it touched on issues that everybody was feeling, particularly in the United States, you know, where the, you know, there was a sense of what the heck is happening to us? You know, you had this buffoon of a president recommending, you know, bathroom detergent as a treatment for the disease. There was a prospect of his reelection. Um, America seemed to have more morbidity and mortality than any other country. And the country that had virtually created um, the greatest advancements of science suddenly was dependent on the Chinese for, for, for swabs and, 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 basic medical supplies it just it it just seemed as if um uh it was a symbol of the end of the american era uh and i think i think as i said you know some of the um some elements there i was wrong but i think it was prescient in the fact that i think it is you know the unraveling of america and i think it's continued to this day um you know, no empire uh, lasts forever. Everyone is born to die. And if you think about it, uh, you know, the, the 15th century belonged to the Portuguese and the 16th to the Spanish, 17th to the Dutch, 18th to the French, 19th to the British, 20th to the Americans. And it, certainly at that point in time, it wasn't clear um, that there would be another century of American dominance. But I did say in that essay, which I thought was more like, an, it wasn't a, a critique of America. It was more like an intervention with a beloved family member where the first step is to show them what they've become so that they right, look yeah. in the mirror and see what they think they are, but actually pay attention to what you've become. And, um, and what happened to the America that emerged from World War II um, very much um, the moral high ground, very much, you know, having through industrial might sa literally saved civilization. What happened to an economy that in 1945 made 95% of the world's automobiles? You know, what happened to the 
social contract with the working man and woman that allowed someone to have a factory job and actually raise a family in good schools, buy a car and buy a home. All of that, you know, what, 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 what's become of a country that, you know, has more um, uh, uh, deaths through gunshots um, in the first three months of every year than the Americans suffered in the D-Day campaign of World War II. You know, so what, what is that all about? And that's what that essay was trying to uh, unravel. And uh, we're now trying to, you know, and I think the, the fundamental structural things about contemporary American society um, were quite accurate in that piece. And, they, and, and, and I, 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 I've, I've, I've seen no reason uh, to change my opinion on that. Yeah. Do you think you see yourself as an outsider, but you get these, uh, these perspectives? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's interesting. You know, I mean, one of the things that's absolutely was flawed in that article, because at the time, um, Canada was doing very, very well with COVID, particularly British Columbia. And, uh, you know, I, I quoted Robin Williams, who said that, who famously said that to live in Canada is like living in an apartment above a meth lab, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and there was that, there is that feeling in Canada, you know, not that Canada is a perfect place on the contrary. Um, but there is, there is, there are the bond, you know, there is a bond of solidarity fraying in Canada for sure. Um, but that, that is brought together, um, here that you don't find in the States. And a big element of that is, you know, in Australia is universal healthcare. I mean, healthcare in Canada is hugely problematic. You know, we, we, the, 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 the delays in treatment, you know, it's designed to be able to treat everybody. And it, mm-hmm. and it does very well with trauma, uh, but preventative health care is very complicated because the system is overtaxed. I'm sure you're going through the same thing in Australia. So it's no perfect system. You know, the, the, the wait for procedures can be, um, if not life-threatening, can certainly be, a, you know, an issue for people. Mm-hmm. But in when we critique the healthcare system because of those faults, we often forget that healthcare, give, universal healthcare has an element to it that has nothing to do with medicine, which may be its most important attribute. Uh, and that is social solidarity. The key thing about universal healthcare is sending a message to the whole country that every individual matters, you know, and that, that if your child gets sick, they will get the same care, even if the care is flawed uh, mm-hmm. in ways in terms of, you know, wait lists and so on, they will still get the same care that your kid gets. And then indeed the prime minister's kid would get. Uh, and uh, I mean, if, if you ever, you know, if, and I said it seriously, everybody thinks that's impossible. But if you wanted to pick one single thing in a place like Canada, that would mean the end of your political career would be any evidence that you use your political clout, no matter what your office to get your kid to the front of a queue at a hospital. If you did that in Canada, I believe your career would be over. That would create the kind of outrage that would be universal in the electorate. And so I think that, you know, so healthcare is really about social solidarity as much as it's about um, uh, medicine. So, I mean, that, that's something the Americans simply do not understand. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, you know, if you go to your grocery store in the United States or uh, uh, Canada, the, the experience is so different. There's a kind of a social, economic, class, racial, uh, educational chasm often between you and the checkout person that's unbridgeable. And, you you know, you don't really feel that in the same way in Canada. And I, the reason is kind of obvious, you know, that the person at the till uh, may not have your education, your affluence, or your, your, your privilege, whatever language you want to use, but they probably send their kids to the same public school that you do, you know, because these stores are based in neighborhoods. And they know that you know that they're probably getting a living wage because of the unions, right? And mm-hmm. the third element, of course, is the fact that they know that if their kids get sick, they get the same care as your kids. And those three things, those strands, if you will, woven together, become the social fabric of, uh, 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 of democracy. That's what social democracy is about. That's, you know, that's, 
And that's what obviously the Scandinavian nations have achieved in such an extraordinary way. Oh, it's, it makes a big difference between America and Canada. No? That's the Huge. solidarity. Yeah. Huge. And, 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 then, and then the other thing is simply guns. I mean, the, the incredible thing is that, you know, people are always trying to suggest the Americans are inherently violent. Well, I mean, you know, what about, you know, the Chinese, the Japanese, the Russians, the Germans? I mean, don't tell me that the Americans are uniquely violent in the history of the world. I mean, I mean no. I mean, the, the problem, in fact, study after study, shows that, that there is that the American people are really no different than any other extended population. The only difference is everybody and their dog owns several guns. I mean, we have guns in Canada. <laughs> I mean, I, I own five rifles, but I that I don't use them to kill people. You know, I mean, you talk about, I've got a fish camp, I've got grizzly barrel. Of course you have guns loaded over the door. Yeah. You know, but yeah, that, yeah. But, but you know, you know, the idea of having a handgun or a machine gun, it's just insane. But in the States, if you look at the statistics, Jack, of, of uh, there are more guns in America than people. And, 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 and it's no wonder that every day there's another killing. You know, I mean, look, yesterday in Half Moon Bay, you know, the day before in Southern California. I mean, it's a daily yeah. occurrence in the United States. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I've been, here's a funny story for you guys down under, you know. I've been working on this idea of a, a film series or a documentary feature based on that Rolling Stone piece, you know, like the unraveling yeah. America, kind of, you know, a road trip through America, not in judgment, um, but in love and empathy, basically asking what's become of my friend, you know, because um, I'm not anti-American mm. in the slightest. I mean, I became an American citizen. I'm a Colombian citizen. I'm an Irish citizen. I'm a Canadian. So I have four passports, but I married <laughs> I married an American. Uh, my kids are dual citizen and Irish. And uh, my father-in-law was almost president of the United States. He, he was a kind of ultimate American success story. My brother-in-law was a U.S. senator. I mean, I, 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 my life was made possible in the United States. My life would never, ever, ever have been possible in Canada. Not for a chance. Because wow. it's such a conservative culture here. You know, I mean, mm. you know... Um, you know, when I first went to my great professor at the age of 19, as a total nobody, just a kid, uh, a man for whom mountains had been named and Prince Philip had called him the father of the Amazon, the most legendary plant explorer, I just walked into his office at Harvard and said, sir, I've saved up money in a logging camp. I want to go to the Amazon like you did and collect plants. At the time, I'd never taken a botany course in my life. I had no idea even what the Amazon was. It was just a whim. And uh, instead of asking me for my credentials, he looked across a mound of plant specimens through his antiquated bifocals and said very simply, well, son, when do you want to go? Now, that would never in a million years have happened in Canada. So I have a great reverence for the United States. But, um, you know, it, it, with this idea of sort of, you know, going... Um, you know, across it to try to ask this question, you know, where's the country going? What, what's be, become of it? Um, uh, you know, that's, that's, you know, that, that's sort of the, the, the idea I had. I, I think I've lost my train of thought, to be honest with you. No, no, but if anthropology, I think, is the, the ones, the science that most interests me. And if you're going to, just to have that, that overall view of things that, to know you, you know, because history is interesting if you know your history. Allows you, anthropology allows you to look beneath the surface of things. That's what it does, you know. And, um, you know, you look at something as simple as the, the two American main popular sports, baseball and football. I mean, have you ever thought of how they originated? It's so different, right? And how different they are as sports. I mean, think of baseball. Um, there are no time limits. There are no spatial limits. Uh, a, a game technically could go on in, indefinitely. Um, it's totally individualistic. Well, that's because it grew out of the sandlots of the 19th century and not the corporate universities of the 1920s. So the outfielders in baseball used to be called scouts. Uh, the, the uniforms were modeled on the uniforms of the engineers and the trains that closed the American frontier, the Yankee pinstripes, famously, right? Oh Whereas... God. Well, and it's completely individualistic. I mean, 
the hardest thing to do in sports is to hit a baseball. And and the pitcher pitches, it's out of his control. The hitter hits, that's it. It's the 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 guy alone in the left field has to make the play. It's it's like it's all about you, baby. It's you, you know. Mm-hmm. It's not a collect, it's not really even a team sport. And it's of course a team sport, but every play is quintessentially individualistic, right? And mm-hmm. and the whole motto of the game is it doesn't take doesn't matter how long it takes, as long as you get the job done. Well, that was the ethos of America, right? And then if you look at football, by contrast, it's, uh, it came out of the universities in the 1920s. It's got very strict time and spatial limits by definition. Uh, the players are anonymous, uh, you know, masked in gear. Uh, each one is a cog in the machine. They can get injured and they're just plucked out of the machinery and another one's put in their place. Um, it, it is a, a sport brutal in its physicality in ways that you can't even imagine. I mean, when you see two American football players have a helmet-to-helmet collision, there's a reason that those collisions were finally deemed to be penalties. And the reason is very simple. When that happens, when you have two 250-pound men ru- who can run a hundred, you know, a hundred yards in 4.6 seconds and they collide the, the power of, it's not the collision. It's the cessation of momentum that creates the dynamic. Right. And so when those helmet helmet collisions occur, it is literally the equivalent of having a bowling ball dropped on your head from 10 feet. So it's no wonder, it's no wonder that men are carried off the field in every game. What other sport in the world has a hundred percent guarantee that you will be injured by playing it? I can't think of one. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And so, so you begin to look at America through that lens and, 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 and again, you know, what does it say about America that, you know, you have on the one hand this sort of killing of George Floyd, which sparks this riots in every city. And then you also have the injury of the football player in the Buffalo Bills two weeks ago on the field that set the whole nation into mourning. So what's that all about? You ask that mm. question. You know, two young black men um, confronting, you know, it's just complicated. But the... the uh, the uh, the uh, you know the, the fact that the football teams are you know predominantly African American, uh, mm. coach staffs remain predominantly white. There's a kind of disconnect there that, that that America can't seem to come to terms with. Now, you know, I I have no problem understanding why African Americans dominate the field because if you spend any time in Africa, you'll understand that the roots of racism are fundamentally jealousy. They're just so much better than i mean you know, being, you know so oh, much yeah. hipper so much the rhythm the strength the elegance i mean i you know i've written two books on african religion and spent a lot of time in west africa and of course haiti and 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 uh simply astonished by, by the uh the, the cultural practices and wonder that i encountered in those travels yeah that's just the uh, like i was saying anthropology is the most interesting line of science and um, if i could just bring it back to before we round up about met- metaphysics and and about spirituality i'd try and get to the teachings of the ethereal society which i am very into and um one thing i thought was interesting was about the um that this this the the sun is the god in the bible and also the the brahma of the hindu scripts um they said that what jesus taught is that uh, you know the gods the sun spoke the word and created the earth and that is the that's in the Bible also, and um, the, the the Aztecs worshiping the sun god, and so there were all these parallels between between those cultures. Well, you know, the thing is, Jack. I mean, you can you can it's interesting. Okay, you can then suddenly say, well, is there some kind of hidden message there, or can you say, well, no shit, Sherlock. I mean, you know, um, <laughs> one of the, one of the uh, 
fascinating things that I find about anthropology. You know, we've talked even in this podcast about, you know, differences of culture. But the fantastic thing is also the inherent similarities in the sense that every single human population not only shares the same genetic endowment, therefore the same raw intellectual capacity, mental acuity, human potential, mm. whatever you want to say, we also share the same exact adaptive imperatives. We all have our children. We all have to find ways to couple that are consistent. They can be different, mm. you know, you, across in different cultures, but within a culture, coupling has to be consistent, always is consistent. We all have to deal with the agony of growing old. We have to feed our children. We have to find ways to educate our children. We have to deal with the, as I said earlier, the inexorable mystery that death represents. And, and so we all face that challenge. We all wake up in the morning and see the sunrise. We see the sunset. We know the darkness comes on. We see light and darkness. We see hot and cold. You know, this is the old dualistic idea of uh, Claude Lévi-Strauss, you know, the raw and the cooked. We live in a world of dichotomies, of dualism, and we try to find a way to take that opposition, he would say, and resolve it in some kind of consistent harmony, be that as it may. You know, the fact the sun is revered all around the world uh, could be telling us nothing more than the fact that we all as human beings wake up to the sun. And, 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 and so, you know, Again, one doesn't have to sort of invoke grand theories of unity um, or, or, or nefarious uh, uh, examples of conspiracy um, simply because we deal with common perceptions and experiences. I mean, the, the wondrous thing to me is this, is this, fantastic notion that all human beings everywhere have the same, as I said, adaptive uh, imperatives. And then we find ways to satisfy or, or, or uh, deal with those imperatives that are so incredibly distinct and curious and wondrous, right? Mm. And, and, and uh, I guess, you, you know, this is in my mind, this has always been um, the purpose of anthropology is Ruth Benedict, um, Margaret Mead's lover and, and Franz Boas's great uh, student, famously said the purpose of anthropology is to make the world safe for human differences. And if there's one lesson of anthropology, it's that the other peoples of the world aren't failed attempts at being you. You know, they're not failed. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> they're not failed attempts at being modern. You know, every culture is a unique answer to that fundamental question, what does it mean to be human and alive? And every culture, in answering that question, has something to say, and each deserves to be heard, just as none has a monopoly on the route to the divine. Yeah, and all the pyramids all over the world, I mean, they can arrive at the same. Uh... Yeah, it doesn't mean that there was a master Martian pyramid designer. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, there, there are certain basic ways you can create a structure that elevates the easiest you. way. I mean, in, in other words, uh, you know, again, that's a good example. You know, why invoke some kind of notion that there must have been, you know, Mayan ancestors in Egypt? Because after all, how did the Egyptians learn to build these pyramids? No, how about the more beautiful idea is that human beings want to get close to the sky? We all know that. It makes perfect sense intuitively. We all look up. You know, we, 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 it, 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 it doesn't, it, 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 a child looking at the clouds looks up to the divine, you know, a mm -hmm. child looking into a hole in the ground is looking towards hell. You know, I mean, I'm not saying the earth is hell. What I mean is that it, it's mm -hmm. not rocket scientists, science to suggest that human aspirations for the divine would be looking to the stars, looking to the clouds, looking to the sun that is the source of life itself, and that our sense of a darker place, a place of death, uh, would be below ground. Because for much of our history, of course, as in terms of a conscious species, we didn't have a sense of living on a round planet. We felt we were on an infinite 
flat plane of existence, right? And we constructed our imagination around that. And and it just makes intuitive sense that you that the sense of the heavens would be high and 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 a sense of death would be low, the comfort of the earth, all these metaphors that I think are universal perceptions of human beings. But that doesn't mean that because the Barasana in the Northwest Amazon bury their dead beneath the Maloka, you know, in canoes facing down the Milk River, that they learned to do that by some ancient culture or contemporary culture in India that also happens to bury its dead uh, in a temple ground such that the living trot upon the memories of the dead with every footstep. I mean, this is not, you know, you don't need to invoke, one doesn't need to invoke, you know, everything is not directly and literally connected in that sense. And to suggest it does is to, is to reduce the poetry, the imagination to the prose of the state. Oh, I think that's a beautiful note to end on that all your years of travel and exploring different cultures has, has led to a greater understanding and uh, of these different cultures and yeah, it's great. Yeah. Okay, Jack. Well, thank you. Nice to be with you. Lovely to be you. Thanks again for taking the time to chat. Okay, you fell. Bye bye. Thank bye -bye. you. Bye bye. Bye bye.